There is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How can Paul say that with such confidence? Well, I think he can say it because of one word. Grace. Grace. As we continue in our series, Brick and Mortar, today, we're going to lay the third brick in our foundation, the brick of grace. And grace is so foundational to the gospel that it's even described by Paul as the gospel of the grace of God. And one of the most profound and beautiful passages in all of Paul's writing, and I would say even in all of the New Testament, we just read from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. And a few years ago, back in 2019, I actually preached five sermons on those 10 verses, some of you may recall. Uh, And there's a lot to say about it. And I would encourage you to go back and listen to that series if there's things I don't touch on today. But for the purposes of this morning and reflecting on grace, I have three things I want to consider together. Grace, boasting, and faith. So if you have a Bible, open it up. Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, beginning in verse 4, and uh, I just want to show you this bookmark that Maggie made for me. I really like it. It's three dragons. It's mommy, daddy, and her, and I said, where's Angeli? And she said, I can't draw her right. And so, (laughs) Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So let's begin with our first point, grace. Twice in these verses, Paul says, we are saved by grace. We're saved by grace. In other words, we are saved. We're set right with God by grace and grace alone. And so what does it mean to say we're saved by grace? And when it comes to grace in Scripture, grace is often uh, translated by people as unmerited favor. You know, this is kind of a classic definition. It's unmerited favor. But favor, it just feels a little old-fashioned to us today. And so undeserved love is another try. But if you think about it, when is love ever deserved? You know, the minute deserving comes into it, the romance and emotion, all the feeling melt away. I mean, like Shaq from Love is Blind too, right? Like that, shake, shake. Like, I mean, that makes love <laughs> melt away. Now you know what I watch on the weekend. So a simple and snappy definition of grace is offered by Paul Zoll, and I love this. I've held on to this for years. Grace is one-way love. 
Grace is one-way love. More specifically, Zoll writes, Grace is love that seeks you out when you have nothing to give in return. Grace is being loved when you are unlovable. It is being loved when you are the opposite of lovable. This is grace. And I like this definition of grace because it captures the risk and the scandal of grace. Uh, Think about the pain of loving someone and not being loved in return. Have you ever been in that situation of unrequited love where you've fallen in love with someone but the feelings aren't mutual? Often in plays like The Twelfth Night by by Shakespeare, uh, unrequited love, like that's the basis of it, right? This kind of love triangle where Mr. So-and-so loves Mrs. So-and-so, but Mrs. So-and-so loves another Mr. So-and-so, and on and on the cycle goes, love just not being returned the way we would hope. And there's just something so tragic about love being unrequited. And Scripture says God has loved us with an unrelenting and yet unrequited love. And the Scriptures convict us and experience affirms we don't love God in return as we ought. You know, Michelangelo's painting, The Creation of Adam, you know, captures our fallen human nature so well. God moves toward us with astounding love, but we're disinterested. Now, we're not devoid of love. After all, we were made to be loved and to love. And this purpose remains in our lives even when we fall into sin, even in the aftermath of the fall. But because of the fall, because of sin, our love is easily misdirected. St. Augustine helps us get at this. Here's what he writes. We must love things in the right order so that you do not love what is not to be loved, or fail to love what is to be loved, or have a greater love for what should be loved less, or an equal love for things that should be loved less or more, or a lesser or greater love for things that should be loved equally. I'm not surprised this doesn't make it into wedding vows very often. (laughs) But his point is that we are so readily preoccupied with other loves, lesser loves, even weaker loves, more than the love of God. We might love the things God has made, creation, the mountains, the ocean, the sky. We love our bodies. We love hiking and skiing and eating, and some of us love us some pizza. You know, we love dancing and alcohol and sex, not that always are related, but we love life and people and animals most of the time. And, you know, we love things and technology and apps And these things are not inherently bad. None of them are. But we make them into ultimate things. We make them into our greatest loves. And then it shows that our love is actually disorder because we are loving the things of the earth more than the creator of the earth. And I haven't even touched on how we can love the wrong things, unhealthy things, destructive things, that we can love someone's misfortune, although we might not ever admit that out loud. We can love the rush of lust, the delight of gossip, or the joy of feeling superior. My point is that there is a risk to loving people like us because our love is often misdirected as a result and God's love ends up being unrequited. We do not love him in return. 
But all the same, God has loved us with an eternal and unbridled love, even if it goes unreturned. Even though we do not love God as we ought, as we confess week after week in our liturgy, God moves towards us with love. He meets us on our knees and he lifts us up because God, in his grace, descends to be with us even in our sin. God loves us because God loves us. And for no other reason than this, God loves us. And this is what makes grace so scandalous. You see, grace is not bound to playing it safe. It is a love that loves and loves and loves and loves and loves through rejection, through abuse, through manipulation, and even disinterest. It is the love of God that will not let us go. It is a love that persists and shows up and remains in the places where we think it should not go. The den of thieves, the bed of prostitutes, the homes of tax collectors. These are just a few examples that we see in Scripture. And the greatest scandal of all is that the love of God shows up on two crooked beams where Christ was crucified. As Paul wrote twice in our passage, by grace you have been saved. We can't talk about grace without talking about salvation. The two are bound up together. Grace saves So if we want to know grace, we have to follow it down this path of salvation. And grace always leads us to the cross because there, God's immeasurable love for us is on display for the whole world to see. And it scandalizes us. You know, left to our own natural thoughts, we don't think we need something so extreme to save us. We might have disinterested love, but it doesn't require a cross. But the testimony of Scripture about the cross again and again is that there was no other way and is no other way to be reconciled to God. This is what was necessary. This is why Jesus Christ came into the world. And if Christ had not died, we would remain dead in our sins and alienated from God's love forever. But the cross scandalizes us because it is also a display of love like we've never seen before. Of all the things happening on the cross, the most important one to grasp is this. It is a revelation of the love of God. It is a revelation of the love of God. As Paul writes elsewhere, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. Though for a good person, someone might die. But... God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus Christ did not die for you so that God could love you. Jesus Christ died for you because God loves you. That is the essence of the gospel. The love shown for us on the cross, it is no ordinary love. It is a love that we will never encounter within ourselves or in in another human being because it's divine love, suffering and hurting beyond our comprehension, all for the sake of forgiving us and reconciling us and pursuing us and welcoming us home. And this love, it exposes then how weak and disordered our own love has been all this time. We do not deserve to be loved like this, and yet... We are. Grace is one-way love. 
And this is why Paul stresses that grace is a gift. As he writes in verse 8, it's by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God. God offers us grace before we ever asked for it. Before we even thought to ask for it. And if you think to ask for grace, it's a sign that grace is already working upon you. Because grace precedes our desire for grace. As St. John puts it, we love because God loved us first. We love because God loved us first. And because grace is a gift, because grace is God loving us first, we can't earn it. We can't be entitled to it. We don't have any right to it. We can't even measure up to be partially deserving of it. All we can do is open up our hands, open up our hearts, open up our lives, and gratefully receive grace as a gift, grace as God lavishing lavishing us with love, this boundless love demonstrated in Christ Jesus. But grace is not general. It's a gift of God for all of humanity, yes. But it's also a gift of God for you. It's a gift of God for you. And and it's at this critical point of grace where we might actually start to resist grace. And you might not even realize you're doing it. You see, we can speak about grace intellectually and generally, but can we speak of grace experientially and personally? Do we speak of grace as an idea or as a reality that has gripped your soul and changed your life? So with grace in mind, I want to consider our next point, boasting. Boasting. Often, what keeps us from knowing grace experientially and personally is ourselves. The Apostle Paul knows this. He's aware of this. And so he adds this qualifier in verse 8. No one can boast. Since grace is a gift, no one can boast. If you know grace, you cannot boast. If you brought something to the table, if we had some sort of inalienable right to grace, we could flaunt our credentials. But Paul stresses that this is not of ourselves. It's not of our works. It's not of being the the right people. It's not about anything we've done. It's a gift and therefore excludes boasting. And so to help us get our heads around this, I want to consider two ways that we boast that reveal that our hearts still have not yet been gripped by grace. There's boasting out of pride, and there's boasting out of shame. Boasting out of pride and boasting out of shame, and both are ways that we keep God's love at arm's length. So what does it look like to boast out of pride? Uh, The boxing heavyweight champion Muhammad Ali once said, I'm not the greatest, I am the double greatest. Not only do I knock him out, I pick the round. The Basketball Hall of Famer Larry Bird once said to his teammates, you guys want to win the game? Give me the ball and get out the way. (laughs) Kanye West said, I am the number one human being in music. That means any person that's living or breathing is number two. But my favorite is this. My greatest pain in my life is that I'll never see myself perform. (laughs) Now, we kind of love this, like, this type of boasting in some ways, right? 
Like, it's so ridiculous, it's almost impressive. Like, there's something about it that just, we're like, I kind of like it. I can kind of listen to this. I won't do that, but I could kind of get on board with what they're doing. We enjoy the absurdity of it. And while these extreme examples of boasting are comical, it's easy to overlook then how we're still inclined to boast ourselves. Like anyone else, we can boast, and it's true, especially when it comes to faith. And if it weren't true, Paul would have no need to say no one can boast. If boasting weren't a risk for those of us who are pursuing faith, Paul wouldn't need to warn us against it. And yet we find ways, don't we? We can find ways to loudly or quietly say to God, I can measure up. You know, I can do what it takes to offer something to be worthy to be saved and accepted, to be welcomed into your presence. You know, and the loud boasting is obvious. You know, God accepts me because I do the right things for God. I'm a very religious and active person. Therefore, God accepts me. But it's the quiet boasting that is less obvious. You know, have you ever done the right things for God, but it's mostly a tally you you keep or an internal checklist? You know, let's press into that a bit. Because on an intellectual level, you might say, yes, I'm saved by grace, not by what I do, but then on a practical level, on an everyday level, it still depends on what you do and how you live. You know, does your sense of acceptance and approval fluctuate depending on how consistent you've been with spiritual disciplines? So if you haven't read the Bible in two weeks, don't put up your hand. I don't want you to feel bad about that. Is the outcome, I feel far from God? Is the outcome, God must be disapproving of me? I mean, if your prayer life is kind of meek and mild at best, if it's kind of flutters in and out of your life, how do you assess that? And if you read your Bible every day, if you pray every day, is that the basis of which by then you say, God accepts me? Now look, all of these disciplines are good. They're all means of grace. They help us connect with grace. But our discipline and our ability to keep these disciplines are not the basis of our approval. They're avenues that open us up to grace, yes, but they are not the grace themselves. And so if our sense of security, if our sense of acceptance, if our sense of being loved by God is bound up in our performance or track record or the things we do for him, whether it's spiritual disciplines or serving the poor or seeking justice, whatever it may be, if it's those things that then become the basis for your identity and sense of approval, it's a quiet form of boasting. On the other hand, You might critique religious people for doing what is good out of obligation for doing what is right out of fear of judgment. So you might say no religious person is actually truly doing good because the baseline motivation is a fear. It's not good for goodness sake. And perhaps you've even said or thought if there's a God, you know, he'll see I lived a good life I was a good person, and if he doesn't accept me for that, then I don't want anything to do with this God. But this is also a kind of boasting. You're claiming that how you live your life is so exemplary that the creator of the universe should 
bend down, lend you his ear, and listen and be impressed by the wonders you'll whisper. When you're boasting that your good deeds are so genuinely good and worthy of being acceptance by the only one who can be called good, the only one who has the right to be called good. And so when it comes to salvation, boasting, any kind of boasting, loud or quiet, religious or irreligious, it's all absurd. Because in boasting, we're demanding God's acceptance while rejecting the gift of grace. We're saying, I want you to accept me on my terms, but I will not be accepted on your terms. It's a boasting. And just as grace excludes boasting, boasting excludes grace because it refuses the gift. But there's another subtle way that we can boast That's the inversion of boasting out of pride, and that's boasting out of shame. Uh, The Welsh pastor Martin Lloyd-Jones tells a story and a practical, simple test. He would ask after explaining the way of Christ, the way of grace to someone. He would ask them, are you ready to say that you're a Christian? And if they hesitated, he'd say, well, what's the matter? What's holding you back? And often, he says, people would say to him, I don't feel like I'm good enough yet. I don't think I'm ready to say I'm a Christian yet. And about this experience, Lloyd wrote, At once I know I've been wasting my breath. They're still thinking in terms of themselves. They have to do it. It sounds very modest to say, well, I don't think I'm good enough. But it's a very denial of the faith. The very essence of the Christian faith is to say that he is good enough and I am in him. And as long as you go on thinking about yourself like that and saying I'm not good enough, You're denying God, you're denying the gospel, and you're denying the very essence of faith. And Lloyd continues, how can I put it plainly? It doesn't matter if you've almost entered into the depths of hell. It doesn't matter if you're guilty of murder as well as every other vile sin. It does not matter from the standpoint of being justified before God at all. You are no more hopeless than the most moral and respectable person in the world. You see, when shame says God could never accept me, you're still focusing on yourself and not God's grace. It sounds like humility, but it's not. It's still a sort of self-absorption because you're well aware of your faults and your imperfections and how far short you measure up to God. And so you think there's something you need to do. You need to clean yourself up. You need to get further down the road in self-improvement before you could be ready and acceptable to God. And so, the point of grace is you could never clean yourself up. You could never be worthy. We're in a desperate state, and God comes and meets us, either in our pride or our shame, and says, lay it down. So if you say, I'm too far gone, there's more I have to do to be accepted, you're still living as if you're saved by what you do and then not by grace. And you're putting limits, actually, on God's grace. So the question is, what's going on beneath the boasting? Whether we're boasting from pride or shame, what's actually occurring inside of us? Isn't it a deep desire and yearning to feel like we'll be okay? We'll measure up someday. We'll figure it out. 
You know, behind all the smoke and mirrors, isn't all boasting a form of compensating for how strangely insecure we can feel no matter how much we have, how talented we may be, or how much we may accomplish? You know, the person who boasts out of pride is masking their insecurity, where the person who boasts out of shame is wearing their insecurity. But the issue's the same. You know, any kind of boasting, it comes out of the heart that's trying to justify itself, the heart that's trying to prove its own existence, to prove its worth, to prove it matters. Because deep down we know very clearly something is wrong and something needs to be done about it and I need to make something right about myself. But so long as we boast in quiet or loud ways, we will resist grace from becoming personal and experiential because we'll remain stuck focusing on ourselves and what we've done or what we've failed to do. We'll be caught up in our own greatness and worthiness or lack thereof. But here's the question we need to ask. Why does no one have the right to boast? Think about how humanity was described in the first three verses of our passage in Ephesians. I'll read them again. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So our unrequited and disordered love toward God are actually a symptom. And these verses from Ephesians are the diagnosis of our true spiritual condition apart from Christ. So if we are dead and disobedient by nature, children of wrath, how can we boast about anything? What could we possibly boast about in ourselves to make us worthy of praise, deserving of God's affection, or so outstanding before our maker that we would be entitled to his grace? But then come two of the most beautiful words in Scripture. But God. But God. You were dead in your trespasses, but God. You are following all the wrong things, intentionally and unintentionally, but God. You were by nature children of wrath, but God. Paul writes, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace You've been saved. We can't boast because we did not lift so much as a finger to be saved and set right with God. We didn't deserve it, but even when we were at our worst, even when we were sin and, uh, sinners, even when we were enemies of God, God loved us and made us alive in Christ. By grace, you've been saved. It is a gift from God. Therefore, you can't boast. So I just want to consider one more point, faith. When I was 12 years old, my dad bought me my first personal computer. This thing was the best of the best for 1993. Let me tell you, 17-inch monitor, 486 processor, 512 bytes of RAM, 
one gigabyte hard drive. It even came stocked with Windows 3.1 and, yes, Wolfenstein 3D. Anybody? Yeah. Wolfenstein 3D. I'm talking power, people. And I was so elated. I came home from school, and my dad had just set it up in my room that it led to this, like, unusual display of affection in our home. You see, we're, we're a stoic family. We're a emotions are best swallowed, not expressed kind of family. And I was so elated that I started jumping up and down like this, like, thank you, Dad, thank you, Dad, thank you, Dad, thank you, Dad. I just ran and hugged him, and my dad was just kind of like, yes, son. Now, it's difficult to find an illustration sufficient for the grace of God. Let me be perfectly clear. Like, grace is way better than a 486 computer or any material gift. There will never be a good enough analogy. But what we have to anchor ourselves in is this truth. Grace is a gift, a free, delightful gift. And the appropriate response to this gift is Gratitude. Grace, it elicits an endless praise of thank you, thank you, thank you. In fact, if you trace the roots of grace, uh, charis in Greek, you'll find a verb that means, I rejoice, I am glad. So the action of grace is gladness and rejoicing. This is why grace causes us to run unashamedly and embrace our Father with an endless chorus of thank yous. And again, Thank you, thank you, thank you. How do we receive this gift of grace? It's offered for the taking. Paul writes, we're saved by grace through faith. So don't get it backwards. We are not saved by faith through grace. Your faith matters. It opens you up to grace But your faith doesn't save you. Grace saves you. And this is good news. It means God isn't looking for perfect faith or strong faith or impressive faith or flawless faith or faith without doubts. God loves you with a risky and scandalous love. God has done everything to save you in Christ. And so faith trusts not in itself, not in the quality of the faith you have, Faith trusts in Jesus and what he has done for us. In other words, our faith is in the faithfulness of Jesus and not our own faithfulness. Our faith is just the channel that opens the hands and says, give me that grace, Lord. I want the present. I want the gift. I want to to unwrap it and wear it and let it take a hold of me and change my life. You see, when you're saved by Grace and your faith is in that truth. That's grace upon grace upon grace upon grace and that there's nothing you can do to be loved beyond you could ever be loved in this world. What happens? Well, our misdirected and disordered loves, all that gnawing insecurity, the desire for acceptance, the need to justify our own existence, the need for liberation from all this darkness that has kept us dead, it will be and can be healed because of two beautiful words, but God. God knows the very worst about us, about you, but God. But God loves you, not at your best, not some future version of yourself, you right now. 
God of the universe is crazy about you. The God of the universe loves you. There is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And the fact that the God of grace sees you and meets you and saves you and raises you and makes you alive in Christ, that justifies your existence. You are beloved. That is why you are here. And so I just want to leave you with this question from Brennan Manning. Do you believe that the God of Jesus loves you beyond worthiness and unworthiness? beyond fidelity and infidelity, that he loves you in the morning sun and in the evening rain, that he loves you when your intellect denies it, your emotions refuse it, your whole being rejects it. Do you believe that God loves you without condition or reservation and loves you this moment as you are and not as you should be? Do you believe that God loves you without condition or reservation and loves you this moment, as you are, and not as you should be. Let's pray.